0: Episode two: The Other Drummer, Mark McKay from Slapshot. Well, formerly of Slapshot, but I know him as Mark McKay from Slapshot. Anybody, anybody that lived in the Greater Boston area, I would say a lot of people on the Eastern Seaboard, who were into this stuff in the late '80s and early '90s, like knew about Slapshot, had at least one of their cassettes in the arsenal it was on a mixtape or two they were like the, our greatest export slapshot they were the biggest deal kind of kind of rock stars for us who uh, us meaning like my brother and i and our friends were, were playing in a bands playing in a band um, trying to sort of really mimic what they were doing and with good reason i think like they were a super available, super super stripped down um, version of of what you would consider hardcore. Um, in a, in the best, I think, in the best way, at their at their best moments, a really elegant way. And man, Mark and his drumming really emphasized that for me. I felt like it was really a good a, a good uh, template. To follow, even then I knew it was a good template to follow. It was, it was. Uh, well, I don't want to say rudimentary. I don't want to say. I don't want to say stripped down. But it was, it was, it was deliberate. I feel like it was a very conscious and deliberate way to, to sort of play the drums and just sort of approach that music. It Was hugely influential. Because um, I was 12 when I started playing. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing and playing along to records, and playing along to his stuff really helped me do the math and figure it, figure it out, you know? Um, because it was it was, uh, uh, it was it was this sort of baseline starting point. It was like starter kit for how to play. I couldn't play like Jeff Nelson, you know? I couldn't play like Earl Hudson. I couldn't play like, you know, um, Brennan Canty. I couldn't do any of that yet, but I could, I could play like Mark. Um, and so that was huge, but also he was just like the nicest guy, the nicest person you could ever hope to meet in this sort of intimidating, kind of you know, um, ferocious sounding band that had this sort of reputation for being formidable. He was not, he was, I mean, and the other guys weren't either. I mean, they're all very sweet, but he was really, um, Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, define sweet. But but he was a really uh, approachable, a really approachable, really down to earth, unpretentious, friendly person who loved talking to people that wanted to talk to him. And it made a huge, huge impact on me um, later, you know, later in life having the good um, fortune to have at least a couple of those experiences where people wanted to come up and talk to me about my band and talk to me about what the, my, you know, drumming has, has done for them as drummers and for, people, as, for as musicians. It's super humbling and super fucking awesome and amazing and uh i never never just wrote psa wrote real quick it just never gets old so if anybody even remotely wants to say anything nice to me um he could come do it but <laughs> he his approach to that was to be super down to earth and for a shy kid who's super intimidated about talking to older uh, to older-ish people and to people that especially their are in bands you like he made that instant It was instantly clear instantaneously clear that it was okay to come talk to him and that it was gonna it, it was gonna be a kind of a, a, not only like an easy conversation but fruitful <laughs> like you can get something out of it we talk little we talk about that in the interview but um you know he hasn't played in the band anymore hadn't played in the band in a long time but uh, i really appreciate him as as kind of a goal post and I appreciate him as a as a dude and I wanted him on the show. Second second guest. And uh happy to have him. Ha- happy. I'm so ha- happy to have him. I can't even say the word. That's how happy I am. I I can't say I can't I can't even say it. I'm not going to say it again because I will say it wrong. I'll say it in that weird way. I just said it. It's going to be weird to keep saying that that way because that's how happy I am. Oh, I just said it right. Ah, anyway, yeah, episode two, The Other Drummer. Please enjoy it. We, you know, we, we run, we run the jewels. Uh, have a good time. I nerd out. Um, Mark McKay, a sweetheart. I hope to have him. I really. Uh, i He'll be a guest again. I'm sure. Um, enjoy the it. All right, guys. Welcome. Well, first of all, welcome to my home. This is ah, my thank house.
1: you, and mine too.
0: Yeah, that one <laughs> lovely, lovely curtains. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited to have you here. How are Thank you doing? You.
1: Very well. Um, you know, despite the uh, usual trials and tribulations that everybody in the world's going through. Um, yeah, just doing okay.
0: Cool. Yeah, I mean, all things considered. Uh, A <laughs> lot of things to consider yes. when I say yeah. all things to consider. but
1: Especially as musicians and people who enjoy live music and that sort of thing. It's, uh, these are such very strange times.
0: And, and people. You're, you know, like you're like, you're a people guy. I mean, yeah. you're so like, definitely the nicest guy in hardcore. That's, <laughs> for, <laughs> that's for sure. Let's just get that out of the way. Oh, my God. First of all, just stop it. Stop being the nicest no, guy. It's just not, it's just not worth it. You're okay? very
1: kind. I, I plan on savaging you this evening. So don't worry.
0: Great. No, no, I mean, it's really it's a, all any, any and all savaging is welcome. Um, But no, I mean, like, it is really, really, so what I like, how many Zooms is this for you? And if you add this to your Zoom day, are you like Zoom heavy? Do you have a lot of Zooms you have to take part in?
1: I do. Yeah, my, my, my job is I I work for a um, medical software company, and I am in the tech support portion. And, um, you know, the easiest way to help me see what someone else is seeing if they're having a performance issue is to show me. So, um, right. yeah, other than, you know, flying out to Montana to see what somebody is seeing, uh, it's pretty much Zoom probably three, four hours a day, which isn't terrible, but it's, yeah, it's a bit That's much. A lot. That's
0: a lot. I mean, I I, I would, have, I mean, on average, I think I'm probably around the around the same, mm-hmm. uh, three, three, four hours. Because you can't, like, what the hell else are you going to do? <laughs> you right. know, I think... Especially, if you're managing. I mean, do you have a team? Do you have like a, a or are you kind of your a lone wolf?
1: No, there's a there's a, a team and points of escalation and that sort of thing. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of um, jingling the handle in Zoom too, like ha- you know, bringing other people in and presenting and yeah. you know that sort of thing. So it's 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 a very kind of active and fluid. Situation when I'm on there, it's not really just conversation okay. and things like that. So I'm always happy to see a friendly face on the other side. The other side. <laughs> cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, likewise. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think it's prudent to start at the beginning. I think like where, when I want when I wanted to start doing this podcast, I wanted to interview people i people I knew and admired, but I think like. Primarily, people I knew because I think it was it's an easier it's an easier in for me yeah. for me oh, to like have a have a conversation. But I also think like one of the things I like to sort of do is remember like the last time, especially now with COVID, the last time we saw each other. When was that? I don't. Well,
1: I, I, I was wondering the same thing. Um, um, you know, thinking about going into this and you know what was potentially on the other end. Or what kind of questions you were going to ask, and that sort of thing, or what the conversation was going to look like, and I literally just have no idea. The last time we saw each other, it was probably, um, it it most likely wasn't at a show because I haven't been to a lot of like rock show things in a long time, Um, and I was wondering if you had gone to that Slapshot movie premiere thing that happened in Harvard Square. That was was probably it, honestly.
0: That might have been it. Yep. Yeah, and I remember that being, you know, I'll 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 be. Apart from being tremendous to see you, I think it was also, like, t- it uh, to me, typo- I sort of typified, y- like, you. <laughs> I think, like, we showed up, my brother, I think, maybe my brother came, and I, and it was sold out. I think mean, it was, like, beyond sold out. And I, we were like, well, maybe we'll just, you know, we'll just go and see what's going on. And you just, like, saw us, and you were like, hey, like, <laughs> Do you want to get in and I was like, <laughs> yes mark we want to get in <laughs> that would be great you know it was just such a sweet thing to do and i think like that you know being that guy um in that context um there must be some dissonance around that i think like especially i don't know having, having, well, whatever, you know, you know, Slapshot being sort of the, the, the hard line or the sort of, you know, ha- having that kind of um, mentality around the straight edge and you know, like hard line and straight edge and where, where you guys took it, mm-hmm. sort of deliberately sort of took it. Um, and you being who you are, I think sort of like, if, you know, Slapshot rolls into town. This is, of course, when you're back touring the Slapshot, but like Slapshot rolls into town and people have this expectation. And then they meet you. <laughs> um, is there a bit of, you know, navigating that for you? Like a difficulty navigating that dual existence? Um, I, you know,
1: I think the only, the, the hardest part of it was, um, was getting people to open up to us. Because yeah. you know all the guys in the band. You know that, that everybody is completely capable of conversation and are nice people, you know. But it's just like right. we're right. dealing with hardcore music here. Right. And I mean, everything about it, the presentation, the sound, the speed, the intensity with which it's played. I mean, you got to kind of live that, you know what I mean? And 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 as fun as it was, it had to be intense. You really had to, um, um, you know, be the 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 loudest and the fastest. You know, you wanted to be that and you wanted to challenge people to do the same. You know, that's that's really what we wanted was. The whole the whole reason Slapshot started is because Boston was becoming this this vacuum of of kind of uh, no slight against the bands or anything, but there was no really strong bands that were playing at the time. There were bands starting up, and there were still people around and things like that. But you know the 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 old guard of people had stopped stopped doing it, or had kind of gone metal, or you know were just um, I don't know. It just seemed like it wasn't intense anymore, and we wanted to bring back that in that intensity. So. So, yeah, on one hand, I wanted to bring um the circus you know to my friends, you know right. uh, but but i couldn't I wasn't about to change the way that I was, you know what I mean, so right. when I'm on stage, right. I'm bashing my brains out, you know, we do the best that we can, but off stage you know i I mean, I wanted to see slapshot, I wanted to see a band like that, so um it really was was all about um you know getting the job done as hard and as fast as you could. And then talking to people, you know, seeing your friends and making new friends. That's what it was to me. How
0: how often were you on out on the road? It seemed like I mean, you know, Step On It is such a like you know a, t- a, a, a tone or like a a, a a you know, a poem to that. <laughs> like, you know, hitting hitting the road and doing that. Well, it was really funny. How much
1: were you really out there? <laughs> it's really funny because when we wrote Step On It, I think it was based more on um um Choke's experience, because he was the one who had been out on the road doing these things, you know, whether he was performing or traveling with SSD or D.Y., you know, those, the bands that were, um, you know, right. his his peers. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had been, I think at that time, I think we had been uh, cross-country once uh, with very few shows. Uh, we had played some local shows, and our, our our thing was was kind of, don't play a lot of shows. Just, just hold back, you know, so that people will... If they like it, they'll really be dying for it by the time you get out. So when we got on the road, it was this glorious celebration of of the road. So it wasn't so much that we were travelling so much at that point. And after that point we certainly traveled a lot. But up to that point, I think it was just an ode to the times when we when we had gotten out that were so just so memorable and so strong and um and the places that we went, and the people we met just yeah, so step on it was kind of the beginning of that road touring, so it was kind of us getting ourselves hyped up for
0: it too. Right, right. Like you're sort of trying to do some self actual, actualization there. Try, try, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, very crea- good. Create a yeah, create greatest create a scene that you wanted to go to.
1: Right, but I think everybody yeah. could kind of relate to that too, because at that point there were a lot of uh, smaller touring hardcore bands and things like that. So, um, um, you know, we wanted to. Um, you know, give people an anthem to kind of, I mean, we didn't think it was going to be an anthem, but we wanted to give people um, in our music something to relate to, you know, and that was kind of going out to the bands.
0: Go back to, but I mean, describe Boston in 1985 when you guys, it was 85 when you guys really kind of started to do your thing? Yeah, correct. We Um, started
1: in like October of 85, we started playing.
0: I just from a nerd's point of view, because I love, you know, like I kind of love lore, history, and perspective <laughs> on a time, you know, everybody loves that, you yeah. know, thinking about and discussing a time you weren't, couldn't possibly be a part of because you were either too, live somewhere else or you were too young. Yeah. So I, I was kind of both. But like, so what was it like, the city like at that time? And where, like, it, honestly, from a very nerdy point of view, uh, for, just to satisfy my nerdy urges, where do you guys where did you live back then and what you know because this this people that aren't from here um kind of have an inkling you know boston is essentially a rich man's playground at this point mm-hmm. um but even back even you know 20 years ago um there was still some places and some pockets where actual artists and people that sort of created could do their thing and live and, and sustain themselves. Yeah, we. What was that? We didn't.
1: Like then? We didn't live in those places. Like we all lived in the suburbs. Like I I grew up and lived at the time when we started in Malden, which is just five miles north of Boston. Uh, Steve lived in uh, there there as well. Choke was living in Everett, uh, which is another suburb, just you know, just a few miles out of Boston. Um, John, John, where did John live? I'm not sure. I'm not sure where John lived. I can't remember to tell you the truth, but we were surrounding Boston, but spending all our time in Boston because we had grown up there. You know, um, you know, from my early teens, I was going into Boston just to, um, you know, see history and, and see, um, you know, the excitement of the city, you know. Um, all the shows were in Boston proper, pretty much. So we were accustomed to spending a lot of time in Kenmore Square and South Station and, um, especially Kenmore Square, um, and Copley Square and that kind of stuff. So Boston was pretty, um, it was pretty rough after, um, the, in the early eighties, it was, it was definitely, um, you know, it wasn't like New York, but it was, it, it certainly was a tough place, tough place to be, but there were these there were these people in the scene that was starting up. So you could go to an artist loft and there would be a show with some rock bands, but there would be hardcore kids there and things like that. So we frequented a lot of lofts, art galleries. um, um, People had skateboard ramps in their lofts and things like that. So there was this cross culture. And I think the original um, scene in Boston, I think those guys had kind of... um, not paid so much attention to that. They were looking to, to kind of have this anywhere that could put, could host a show um, was, was good enough. But, but um, you know, as these people started open up their lofts and, and I keep saying lofts, but it, I mean, there were so many shows in lofts like at North station before it was what it is today. You know, it was a super rough area. Um, and um, you know, they would have these loft parties where you would pay five bucks and go see three bands and, you know, you could drink all the beer you wanted if that was your thing, you know. So we would get a, dis- right. we would get a discounted entry because we weren't drinking beer. So, yeah, you weren't,
0: <laughs> so we paid you weren't three interested. bucks.
1: <laughs> right, right. So, the, the, so the, the, the culture in Boston, I mean, there was a lot of people. There was a lot of good, like, people hanging around. But there wasn't a lot of bands after SSD and DYS. And Jerry's Kids and those bands stopped kind of doing their thing. Gang Green kept going but became a different animal. So um, Totally. So that's kind of what, how how we were born. We were born of like the excitement of Boston um, the vacuum that was Boston hardcore wise that we felt was was a vacuum.
0: Um
1: I think I got a little off topic there but
0: Yeah, well, you're talking about like one year. Like, you know, it's like the for like the 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 you know, inception of slapshot is, you know, like I mean, essentially we you're talking about like the tail end, the comet tail kind of, you know, fading. Around probably eighty three, right? To be realistic, yeah. Um, it was like SSD's last show is when? Is eighty is that eighty three or is that eighty four?
1: I think it was eighty
0: four. Yeah. So yeah, it's just like you know, one between that and then the the inception of Slapshot, I think to your young, to your like impatient young minds, must have just felt like an eternity of like a year where like nothing was really firing everybody up.
1: Well, I got to tell you, you Nick, know? I I started playing drums in eighty four. Because there was nobody playing drums in Boston. There were there were there was like you know how it is, one drummer that split between four bands and that kind of thing. It was the same back then. Sure. So I just kind of felt like I had the ability to keep a beat. So um so I bought a set of drums. Me and Steve really wanted to start a band. Steve Fristin really wanted to start a band, but you know, he was learning the guitar and I was not a drummer at that at that point so we we just kind of willed it to happen to tell you the truth
0: yeah yeah that's great i mean I, so that answers my question about when you started playing drums because that's how old were you in 84 like how did that i
1: was uh 18 years old i had just gotten out of high school mm-hmm. i graduated in 83 um mm-hmm. so i went to right into the workforce after that and started getting a regular paycheck so um yeah i took um you know, my, my first couple of months of pay, and went down to with Steve to a local music shop in Malden, and just bought a set of drums to see if I could make it happen. I couldn't play; I I'd never touched drums before.
0: Now, now was it a four piece or a five piece set of drums? It was and a five piece. Decided... Yeah, it was a wow. five piece set of drums. Yeah, it came
1: as a kid. It was wow. a Tama Swing Star kit, and oh, cool. um, so I bought you know I bought the full boat. This uh, couple of Zildjian cymbals and um, and high hats and and the five piece kit and. You know, came with the generic chrome snare and the, you know, the super, sure, the super yeah. generic pedal, which I outgrew very quickly.
0: Well, so because for me, I, I, and anyone that's seen you play, your minimalist kind of setup is really yeah. one of the more like, especially f- seeing you play probably at an era when I saw you when maybe Boston or the anything tangential to hardcore punk was turning a sort of metallic turn yeah. and a lot of drummers had like these 12 piece kits and then double ba- you know it was just like you know all these bands had these drummers that were just these metal guys yeah. there were these big you know huge setups it took forever to break break up and break down or set up and break down and then here comes you with literally two piece three <laughs> you know two two piece kit three piece kit um that to me like Made as much of a statement as, uh, kind of, uh, it was a it, it, it to me it seemed even at my young at that time when I was young it was like this is like a deliberate like this dude is deliberately doing this, but I'm correct me if I'm wrong but I feel like revisionists you can kind of get revisionist and talk about that but but I think like was it something that was just born out of necessity like were you feeling like it was easier to sh- schlep your drums when there was just three of them was it what, well what was the Reasoning.
1: <laughs> um, actually, what what really happened was, if you listen to like back on the map now, it's really it's a slow record. I mean, it's not fast. It, it is. It's, it's it a is. slow record. It's.
0: Right? But it we kind thought, of is, it's kind of astonishing.
1: Yes. Like, <laughs> and we <laughs> so thought we were playing, you know, a little bit more mid tempo and a little speedy, not like SSD or DYS. You know who who we I, I certainly looked up to, but I wasn't capable of doing that. Okay. It wasn't, I wasn't capable of playing that fast. Um, live, we played a lot faster than we did on the record, but I wanted, I, I was, I was still learning, you know, we recorded um, back on the map after I'd been playing drums for like a year and a half. I had never had lessons. So I was just trying my best. Um, so as we kind of got better on our instruments and, and started playing faster, I found that I wasn't able to keep up. I wasn't able to to hit the toms with the speed that I was going accurately. Because I wasn't i wasn't practicing. I, I wasn't taking right. lessons or anything like that. I was just looking for speed. I was looking to kind of up my speed more than my dexterity and my abilities on the drums. I wasn't interested in that. Because right. I was the anti-drummer, you know? I was like, I didn't want to have the toms going. I didn't want to have these, you know, big rolling things. I wanted to just provide this... You know the speed to it, the tempo to it.
0: You delivered that. I mean, it was like, it was perfect. It was a, I think, a visual. <laughs> I, you know, maybe you know, just like added sounds like born out of necessity. You were just like, yeah, fuck that, get these out of here. <laughs> like, but it's made a statement. I mean, it certainly just made it like, like a, it was like a stark like a starkness to it. Well, it, it grew.
1: It, it grew into like when I took the first tom off. The guys were like, what are you doing, you know? And I I was just like, I'm (laughs) not even touching it. I can play an entire show without touching this Tom, so I'm not not going to lug it. So then I took off the other one as kind of a joke and took the stem out, and then I had the three-piece kit with the two cymbals and the hi-hats, and we just thought that was hilarious. But the byproduct of that was I could see what was going on. I could see right out into the crowd. That's what I always wanted anyways, was to see what was going on do my job but you'll always see me watching right so I broke a cymbal Right. so I was left with one cymbal and the hi-hats and the snare kick and floor tom and I could I found that once I stopped trying to stretch that I could keep it so tight and go really really fast and for a long time just with the little bit that I had so that was it we stuck with it
0: that's great (laughs) I think, yeah, I mean, I, I as a drummer, like, who, you know, has stripped, I, you know, pared down, My you record, like, started with a five-piece and pared it down to four, mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Anytime I get the chance to play three-piece kit, like, sometimes it's on purpose, you know, with the band I play with now, the Hands and Knees, I think the first show I ever played with Hands and Knees was with a three-piece kit. Yeah. And it, you know, it's like for me, it's like anytime I anytime I do that, I'm like, ah, oh, Mark McKay, got my Mark McKay setup, fucking <laughs> oh, good, man. And people were like, you know, like the dudes in my band are like, who's that? <laughs> right, know, like, Mark, Mark McKay, man. Just, uh, but it like challenges you, I think, as a drummer to reinterpret like stuff. And I think it's like if if you're playing slow and you're playing with fills and a lot of you know little noodly nuance and stuff, you take that one drum away. You know, you physically are capable of doing less, so you have to work your way around that. Yep. And I, th- I love that. I think I love that idea—that minimalist kind of deliberate, um, uh, you know, om- omission of, of, of something. Well, thank you. Um, I, I,
1: I appreciate that. Um, it, it was, you know, it, it definitely was born of necessity, but it was also um, a conscious choice too. And you know, to make that statement, and that's where kind of old time hardcore came from. Was like we're literally just taking this back to, you know, the absolute core of this thing. And that's that's still my favorite record to this day because it's a, just... A, a,
0: that that record is fast. Yes. <laughs> so bookend. Was, <laughs> was that was that the last uh, recording you played on or was there another one? You no, no. On? I
1: went, after that, we did 16 Valve
0: Hate. Um, oh, oh, I right. played on yeah, Digital
1: Warfare too. Yeah, exactly. But um, um, I think the, for me personally, the last the last great Slapshot record that I, I still listen to is, is all time hardcore.
0: That's a fantastic just it's, record. thank
1: you. Thank you. It's just, I don't know. It just, it, it captures that spirit, I think. And, and we were lucky at that point.
0: Well, yeah, no, it sounds good. I think it came out at a time where, you know, other like hard, hardcore had kind of taken this like at 97, 90, 97, 98, maybe 96. Um, hardcore was once again getting like reacting, reacting to its own me- metallicness yep. <laughs> getting back to that sort of rootsy, um fast kind of stuff that was certainly what I was really interested in mm-hmm. at that time um you know and it, it you guys were like oh, okay <laughs> it's like we'll we'll have our hand at this we'll give it a shot <laughs> and i was like oh fuck well fuck we certainly this. weren't virtuosos Still got it. i mean
1: there were some good good yeah. players in the band but you know we certainly weren't virtuosos i think we brought more heart to it than we did skill but um um yeah like i said we got lucky with that one that it was uh, it, it,
0: it's it's it stands to me i think it still holds up do you still play the drums do you still practice do you still what do you like have a hankering no. what are you, like what are you, no was that just the time you had that was your time your peer your window well i just and that's what you i
1: found that if i was playing the drums then i was playing in a band and I had a new family and it was kind of taking me away from, uh, right. from that. Um, it was kind of a hard habit to break. That's for sure. I went back and filled in a couple of times when their work working drama, couldn't do it and things like that. So I've, the last thing I played was, was that, um, this is hardcore festival in Philadelphia quite, oh, sure. quite a few yeah. years ago. Joe, I, I don't remember when it yeah. was. And that was the last time I played and I had to borrow drums. I don't, I don't even own drums anymore. So, yeah, right. I mean, it's just...
0: Right. Well, at those things, at those big fests, everybody's borrowing drums. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. No, no fucking where to put yeah. your drums. So, it's like 20,000 bands playing. But it was
1: wild. I mean, it was like we were playing with Negative Approach and, I mean, some really, really great bands, but um, I, I felt absolutely like out of place there. I hadn't done it in so long and, you know, I saw some old friends and that was good, but it, it just, yeah, it didn't resonate with me anymore, you know.
0: What no, did you feel uh, as an outsider looking at that whole scene? How did that feel? Well,
1: I, I you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm certainly a, um, a sort of a more laid back person when I'm not in that realm. So when I was kind of forced into that, um, I, again, not forced into it when I, when, I was, when it was presented to me again, I had to right, play. Right. Um, I really felt um, out of, very out of place. Um, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of bravado going on that you know I hadn't seen in in the old scene, and it it was probably there, but I didn't I didn't quite see it. Maybe because I was in the thick of it for so long. But this this kind of like false. I I just I just call it a bravado. You know this this I'm the hardest guy and watch what I can do in the pit and stuff like that. And I was like, well,
0: uh, it's it's a it's it's astonishing. Yeah. How you know that was always? There. I mean, I think you you nailed it. I think you're like yeah, hey, it was probably always there, but when you're in the middle of it and you really you like something that you identify with or a place you identify with, maybe you just refuse to or like you just choose not to sort of see it. Yeah, I very very much feel the same way. Like um like taking big breaks from hardcore personally, being like it's like. I'm interviewing hardcore drummers for the first few episodes of this thing. So that's like who I know, yeah. it's who I can kind of really get into the thick of it with. It's a sort of a kinship, and I think like a, a real sense of, of you know, experiencing the same things somewhat the same way. It's an interesting perspective
1: too with hardcore drummers. It's a it's a super interesting perspective.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, like, but but the hardcore drummers that have walked away from it or chosen, made a sort of, like, you know what, like, this isn't really who I am. Like, um, this isn't my identity anymore. Yeah. Um, maybe you're good at it. Like, maybe that's a thing that's sort of you can just slip on and, and do, as a player, play it. Um, but it's certainly not something that I would ever... <laughs> It's something that, like, I, I turned away from and was like, "Fuck, this is like weird." <laughs> this is like a weird macho scene that I I am a proud beta yeah. and happy <laughs> happy to be a fucking beta. Yeah. And being around all these alphas all the time is really just sucking me dry, just ringing me out. Yeah, you know? man. You know, it's, it's I, interesting. I, to-
1: I feel exactly the same. Um, you know, um, it, it it's funny. I mean, I've been approached by people you know to talk about the the old scene and things like that and how it was such a boys club and I I don't I don't remember it that way I I remember you know the the proportions were definitely off um but there were a lot of really um you know very active uh women in the scene um so that from and, and I was in touch with a lot of a lot of people of of, of all stripes so so it didn't it, it wasn't so obvious to me what a <laughs> what a sort of a one-sided situation it was back then. But on retrospection, I mean, it's just... I would have yeah. done a lot of things differently if I had, you know, if I could go back.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I think the perception of it being a boys club is not unfounded. I mean, it's a lot of a lot of boys. Oh, if you look but at photos think,
1: of the shows, I mean, it's like...
0: But they're all the sensitive boys. They're like all the boys that were like the... They were picked on sensitive weirdo boys. It wasn't like... <laughs> this shit now where everyone's doing fucking push-up you know it's like this like it's a real the machismo and the level of just even even among like sort of like the so-called like sensitive boys and frail boys or whoever else like uh people i could really i could really get down with and relate to um there's a sense of like machismo and a sense of alpha that is really weird to me it's just like a, it's just like. Even to me, I was like, this wasn't the fucking place for that. <laughs> like, right. this wasn't the, this was not, I, like, even me, who's, all, I'm 42, and, like, well, 40 I'll be 42 in a month, but anyway, who's counting? Um, 42, got into punk through Brothers, and that, what my perception of hardcore, my perception of punk involved a lot more weirdness, and a lot more, I, I think, like, artistic breadth hmm. than what you would consider, like, you know, it's like, yeah, the butthole surfers, locust abortion technician and step on it <laughs> are being played back to back <laughs> b- with the same amount of, like, wonder and the yeah. same amount of, like, wow, like, this is just these, they're just fucking freaks playing freaky music. Like, it didn't, make wasn't like, it, you know, I'm obviously, as I got older and realized there were these compartments that it was, Definitely different things going on, but it's like like listening to the early Jane's Addiction stuff in the same, t- the same sitting that you could listen to Negative Approach. Right. It was you know or or whatever else, or Laughing Hyenas who are fucking out there and awesome and crazy, right? You know, um, and their pedigree was so-
1: was certainly uh, uh, there. You know, I mean Laughing Hyenas just slowed it down. It still had the same intensity and the same same thunder to it. It just was. Um, you know, I I me personally. You know, when I heard laughing hyenas, I was just like, "Oh, that's not negative approach. I'm not going to listen to that." You know, right? <laughs> but but yeah. you learn you, and you grow and you shame fig- on you, you figure because you it listen to <laughs>
0: you listen you listen later and you're like, "Whoa, right? This I is missed it really." Yeah, this is really amazing. Yeah, or or even like a Sonic Youth or like you know bands that were in the same honestly in the same sort of milieu in the same sort of world. the, the world wasn't very big um we're doing some out there awesome stuff absolutely you know And the same in a it was almost like a parallel universe happening with the same touch points you're sort of having all the same references but you're not really going to get in with each other
1: well it really brings me back to those loft party things i was talking about because we wouldn't see necessarily hardcore bands there there would be uh surf bands and rock bands and you know just art bands and you know just we would just go there for the, for the spectacle and for the scene, you know, just to kind of hang out right. with people and meet people and that kind of thing. Um, so we were exposed to a lot of different kinds of music, but I was just listening to straight-up hardcore, you know, and reggae. I was listening to a lot of reggae, but there wasn't there wasn't a lot of places to consume reggae in Boston, uh, at least I didn't know about it at the time. So so right. I was going to hardcore shows and seeing hardcore bands and talking to hardcore people
0: and, you know. How early did that start for you? Like, were you, like, what, what were your... You know what were your favorite records when you were a teenager? Kind of heading into discovering hardcore, uh, punk and hardcore.
1: You know I was really lucky. Um, I have a, a older brother, uh, who's two years older than me, and and um, we had a neighbor that was like three years older than him next door, and and he was uh, one of the original kind of hippie guys, so <laughs> so he was passing records to my brother like. Black Sabbath and early Aerosmith and, and things like that um, when, when I was in, you know, first and second and third grade. So I was exposed to, you know, Black Sabbath in 1973, 1974. So I got really on the ground floor on that stuff. So, um, you know, I was listening to Emerson Lake and Palmer and David Bowie and, you know, just really out there stuff when I was like in sixth, sixth and, fifth and sixth grade, 1976, 77, around there so i was primed for punk when it came i had had that i had had enough of um you know that kind of rock that that big rock thing i was just kind of tired of it you know
0: right right
1: so i heard the ramones yeah. i heard sex pistols eventually and um new york dolls and just yeah. i was i was primed for it so i was i was pretty lucky when the hardcore scene rolled around i was Ready for that? That seemed like it was the next step for me too. Took me a while to go to shows, though. I was, I was a a high school kid who was hearing about shows and going. That sounds pretty dangerous.
0: You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, we, our experiences are very parallel. Yeah. i feel like are very similar. You know, or er, er, music was early for me by two older brothers, so it was. You know, they were they were the ones sort of passing down the, this, you know. Anything that they—it th- was a filter. With the, with, you know, they filtered all the good stuff and wanted to sort of really actively show me and inv- invest in in showing me yep. stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was same same thing. Like you know, my oldest brother was like really into Jethro Tull. Oh yeah, absolutely. So like really into Tull. Yep. But at the same time, was like a teenager who was like a weirdo going to sh- going to shows in the '80s, and had cool. Boston, you know, like Boston parkour stuff. Yep. Um I think that, the bands yeah, that okay. really
1: brought me into it though were Kiss and uh, Bruce Springsteen, honestly, as as the as the real bridge. Cuz Kiss was Kiss hit me like a ton of bricks in 1976 when destroyer came out. And so I realized that I loved spectacle. And the music wasn't the, like they weren't great <laughs> musicians, you know what I mean? That was like stripped down rock. So and then I heard Bruce Springsteen Born to Run and he was singing things about like you know in the streets and you know just kind of like his his brand of street stuff so when punk came around it was just like
0: stripped down rock singing about the streets like it's just the best of both worlds you know I could see uh, the Kiss the Kiss reference Re- Kiss is referenced a lot I think a lot of especially a lot of drummers like really got their minds blown um, by Kiss and it, like it missed me just because of my generation, mm-hmm. but I can absolutely see the appeal of it because especially for young, young kids, yeah. it's, it's like, okay. Like I love comic books. I love cartoons. Right. <laughs> like I love science fiction, whatever, you know, like all of the stuff that they brought that sort of, but also just like muscular, very stripped out muscular, simple, like rock. Right absolutely like how the like it's like a formula for success no matter which way you slice it right. and you know it's a, it, and <laughs> but then to go to be like oh the tangent to the ramones isn't too fucking far mm. and or to the sex pistols the sex pistols were sort of touted as a spectacle yep. they were they were put on display Yep. you know as these like look at these freaks you know like let's make some money and having the having that sort of sensibility i think having that appeal like definitely, if you're into Kiss, like, and you stuck with it, and you saw the saw the Ramones, you're like, there's not too much, not too many degrees of separation there.
1: Right. It's just, but it seemed like, yeah, I could identify a little bit more with the Ramones, as, and then I could with Kiss. You know well, what I mean? Well, absolutely.
0: Well, that, that then the appeal is that they're just like these gritty, down to earth, like, and that's you when know. you
1: take the side step. That was, I, yeah. I physically found myself and you never go back
0: I took a you st- never ever go
1: back I took a step to the right <laughs> when I saw the Ramones and that was it yep. that was the end of it for me or the beginning of it all
0: that's what uh, I, like Gee from Fugazi said like you know I was into maybe it was like I was into Emerson Lake and Palmer and I was into this I was into music but then I saw the cramps and I could just never go back like right. I just could never go back to that it was just it was like embedded and stamped stamped on my soul yep. I couldn't go back It's
1: still my preference too. It's still my preference when I listen to things, you know, even when I'm listening to complex things, there has to be some route that I can follow because I'm not a musician. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm a a person who enjoys music. So there has to be this kind of pedestrian aspect, even to classical music, either it has to be, um, um, you know, major notes or, or, uh, a waltz, you know, that I really enjoy or something. Um, but i find myself listening to like ambient music these days a lot of ambient music but it has to be written properly it has to go flow like a song It's not going to listen to like birds and grass blowing and stuff like that i want to listen <laughs> you know it has to have something to why it why not well that's cool to go to sleep to but if i want to if i want to be transported I, yeah. somewhere it has to have uh, some lyrical aspect to it
0: yeah, it's from interesting the pedestrian aspect i think like the punk sort of um punk changed everything for me and ruined everything for me at the same time because you, you can, it's like you sniff bullshit like 200 miles away with anything Um, that really kind of, for me, is like a turnoff to know that like, you know, this, this thing wasn't made by this desperate person (laughs) or this thing wasn't made by this person that had at least some unpolished part of them you know, they didn't bring some sort of unpolished realism to whatever they were mm-hmm. doing. And I can sniff it out. It's like this, like a hound dog for it. Um, and can only like really things that go deep for me are things that are either made in some sort of context where desperation <laughs> is involved and it's clear or with some level of, I don't want to say, uh, I don't want to say ineptitude because that's not, Right, but uh, you, uh, do you know what I mean? Some sort of, um, uh, 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 like, a, a, a grittiness and a, um, a, an adventurous sense of, I don't know, this is uncharted. This is uncharted to me. I'm just fucking doing it. Yeah. Um, that appeals to me. It always will. Well, think about it in terms of, like,
1: um, um, classic things in architecture, okay? When you see a big glass-and-steel building... It's very impressive to see, right? But but, do you want? Do you feel at home in that building? Or do you feel at home in like a craftsman home that's got shaker furniture in it, you know, kind of rough-hewn wood with a fireplace, that kind of stuff, you know? The, the things that are made from the heart will always rise to the top, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you look at uh, brutalist architecture and it's just like, you know, I understand how they got to that point, but, and I can appreciate it, but I don't want to be in that building. Like, what if I had to work in that building for 30 years, you know? Like, it's, it's just not... It's not um, um, homemade, you know? And punk, to me, is, is a homemade thing. It comes it comes from the heart. You know, when they say, oh, you know, these guys can't play their instruments. Well, of course they can't. You know, they're, they're 16-year-old kids in London who don't have jobs, and they just need to do something so they don't go crazy, you know?
0: Right, right. Or 18-year-old kid from Malden right? No, it's just, I mean, it's the same, it, it's the fire that sort of lit everybody up. Yep. And I think like, uh, well, certain people, but I think uh, it doesn't ever go away. Like, you just don't like, it gives you a certain like, permission in the world to be like, well, I'm just going to fucking try it. Like, it, like, uh, it, it, to have, it, think about how much bravery it takes to just start, uh, to to learn how to play your instrument in public and to, learn how to craft a song or to address a bunch of people like over a microphone. Um, All of that stuff takes some serious guts. Um, And people are terrified to do it. People are terrified to get up and like express anything in front of people. Um, To be able to do that at like 16, 15, 16, 17 years old is really just kind of astonishing to me.
1: Um, absolutely true and and i and i like you said i think punk is the is the is the place that um uh, it, it's definitely where i found my uh my kin you know the people that i still identify with and the way that i still dress and the things that i still do
0: you know i still consider myself a a punk <laughs> you know? right right. I mean, and you are. I think it's just the sort of thing you're gonna have the rest of your life. Right. Looking at the world, this if this saw uh, a certain way. Yes. Is gonna be part of your life, part of your, part of your DNA, whether you like it or not. Absolutely. For forever. Did you did you um, book shows when you were a kid? Did you book shows in, in Malden? Were there a couple famous Malden shows?
1: Um, uh, Steve, from Slapshot, and Chris, who played in Slapshot, um, a little after um they they had a uh a hardcore band in in Malden and started in eighty three called terminal ill oh yeah and um and you know we we were thick as thieves i mean the 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 little crew of us there was um we were all together and and you know we all kind of grew up together and all going to shows together and that sort of thing so um with terminally ill they wanted to to play shows, so they were booking shows uh for them to play. And somehow you know we found out about this Eagles Hall in Malden that we could rent out fairly cheap um so um you know we were kind of tangentially involved with the the Boston scene. I mean those guys were st- still you know kind of at an arm's length, but we knew them enough to to ask um if they could play a show and we booked up this show at at this Eagles Hall in malden um and it it, it turned out to be like the last the last kind of great hardcore show, it was, at the, it was in like January of 84. And it was DYS, still a hardcore band. FU's, still a hardcore right. band. Um, terminally Ill, you know, they played too. I mean, it was just like, it was a fantastic show. It really was. <laughs> and and yeah, it just some... felt like like we had finally done something that was great for the scene. But by the summertime, Boston just lost all the gas. There was just not there nobody there were no more shows. I shouldn't say there were no more shows, but there were no more like great bands from Boston, you know. DYS went metal and you know, that's that's another story. Um and, you know, I th- I think that's unforgivable for them to do and and <laughs> I'm happy that they did it. I'm happy that I did it because it's progression, but it was like you know when when you go so vehemently into one form and then your next outing is something so radically different um it it smacks of insincerity to me
0: sure but it like also immaturity though because i think they were like hey like we can actually now we can actually play a little better correct <laughs> we can play pl- actually play our instruments a little better yep and love ACDC. so if you listen to an acdc record it's not too fucking hard to figure it out how they did it so well how is that any different from punk stuff that we're you know like i can totally see it yep. being like okay like and we're getting older we might as well be you know try to take this band stuff seriously because no one's going to listen to you know fucking right. brotherhood you know like brotherhood's not going to take us to MTV so it totally makes this sort of like, you can see this, like, 18-year-old immature perspective on it.
1: That's exactly the word that comes up into my mind. It was my immaturity that would not allow them to move on. You know what I mean? Even though it was a natural right. progression for them, they had been playing since 81, you know? So that's a, that's a huge span of, yeah. for a hardcore band. That's a huge, huge span. So for the, But for them to come out with that kind of thing, it felt like a betrayal, to tell you the truth. It really
0: did. Um, well, SS, SSD as well, just, you know, having... Some of the, you know, the records that they put out. I just, you know, like, they're records that are in every bin, (laughs) uh, you know, that, well, not the DYS ones, but you know what I mean. It's still just sort of this, like, well, they they gave it a shot, (laughs) but it was clear, like, sincerity and energy won the day. And
1: another thing was the production, too, like the production value. Oh yeah. Um. Just increased to a um, when when you listen to an ACDC record, it's not. I, I mean, it's probably super duper produced, but it's produced in it's such a way it. so that it is, stripped down. You can hear everybody's instrument, but at the same time, it's this wall of sound. Um, you know when you get that kind of eighties production on an SSD record, um, um, it, it it didn't hold up for me. You know. It didn't. And I can listen to those records now. But back no. then, I felt, you know, betrayed.
0: But you think about the production value on a lot of those early, like, the production on Brotherhood is so good. To me, it's just so good. Th- and it's not even me being like, oh, I'm hard, like, you know, this fired me up back in the day. But it was like, no. I, I, like, if you objectively put fucking, you put Brotherhood on, and you put the first negative effects LP on, um, or you know other things going on in other places like first miter threat record, uh, negative approach, like all of those records had this incredible blistering, you know, urgent, but perfectly balanced, like shit that they, these kids did in like a day. Yeah. It, was, it was fucking done in a day probably, yep. like everything. Yep. Um, it speaks to the engineers, the producers, the people that worked on that, like yeah. Luke, Lou Giordano, like yes. ended up having a just fucking massive career. It just the guy knew what he was doing, right place, right time, right energy. Um, you know, it's you can't hold a candle to some of that stuff, really. And I'm sure kids are bringing that into their studios, being like, can you make it sound like
1: brotherhood it's like, no it's true how. right exactly because the equipment, the equipment doesn't even exist and the room doesn't exist and honestly i don't think the the, the ferocity exists anymore you know it's just like uh, there are angry kids everywhere at the same but but there was something about the grittiness of of the scene being born that i think is in those grooves you know what i mean
0: absolutely absolutely
1: uh, it, it's it hadn't been done before that first poison idea, seven inch, you know what I mean? It's just like I'm fucking kidding. C- come me. on. Get out of here, man. <laughs> Fuck out of here. But all those sounds records sounds so good. All those records that you mentioned, you know, are things that when I when I think of them, I think of of the spark of creation there. And and the and the desperation and, you know, the technical skill of the people that were recording it, even if it was in a rinky dink little studio or somewhere. They yep. knew how to make things come in and go out. And that was, I, I think that's all it really needed was like more, more fire and a little bit of technical.
0: <laughs> it, it needed, it needed like a Henry Ford type motherfucker to just be like, yeah, poof, 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 like we're going to stamp everything in its right place. And <laughs> off you go, you, you're done. Here's, here's the tapes. Fucking go. Put it. Like, yeah. I mean, like that was total key. Cause well, I mean, look how much difficulty the fucking bad brains had yeah. with like capturing what they were capable of. Like, Like, DYS captured something with far more, like, far less effort, it seems like, than the Bad Brains. Like, the Bad Brains had this, like, terrible run. I mean, the Roar cassette is fantastic, but it has its, like, there's something in it that doesn't, maybe the magic of the band was, like, too, like, it just couldn't be contained (laughs) by some, by a mere recording. (laughs) But, like, but it just seemed like, wow, I wish the Bad Brains just came and did Fucking first record at Radio Beat or something, right? (laughs) You know, like it would have been so much different, so much more fucking intense, amazing.
1: And when they finally came to Boston to record, they did it at
0: with Rick Okasey, yeah, Yeah. with
1: Rick Okasey at Synchro Sound, which was a a a very professional studio, and you get a very professional sounding record,
0: you know, right? You get what you pay for, right? Right? Oh man, I could go on and on, but I but let's fast forward to later in so later in Slapshot's career, you guys are humming sudden death overtime comes out that's a it's a big describe that time is it was a sort of seemingly kind of big deal um for you guys i seem like you guys had that was your sort of your arc at that era the mark mckay like you know um steve like that lineup you know you guys had jamie on base at this point um you're you're not metal, but the, the the sound was definitely more, you know, lack of a better term, more metallic sound, a little bit more, um, you know, the guitar playing is just, you know, fantastic. Yeah. And it seems like those guys are really just allowed to like, all right, like, just fucking go for it. Um, describe that time, because it seemed like, it to, from an outsider's point of view, seemed um, like you were riding a bit of a wave, or there was a, like you know, crest coming. And then, you can, then, so, sudden death overtime, what, 89, 90? 89, yeah. And then, and then Europe for the rest of your lives. So yeah. let, let's go, go from that little period of time. So
1: you're, um you're 100% wrong about sudden death overtime. <laughs> it was, it was the lowest point um in the band's career. The reason we called it sudden death overtime was because we felt like this was our, our um you know we we went into the third period and we just didn't win we weren't we were not doing what we wanted to do things were not successful to us we were infighting not infighting a little bit but we were you know rubbing against each other a little bit the wrong way so we went into the studio to record i think we had about half the songs written and we went in the studio it just was not it was not gelling you know so we didn't think we would make it, and that was going to be our swan song with Sudden Death Overtime. Wow. So we go into the studio, we went into this, um, where did we record? Sudden Death was recorded at, uh, Fort Apache. Oh, yeah. So we go in there, and, and we record with um, uh, Tim, Tim O'Hare. And Tim is, um, he's that hardcore guy at all. He's, a, he's a, a, a real producer engineer. But we totally hit it off with him. And he egged us on, and he 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 squeezed performances out of us that we didn't know we had in us. To tell you the truth, he let us have all the rope we wanted to either hang ourselves or pull ourselves out of the hole, you know. Um, and we hadn't we hadn't had that experience before. We went into the studio with like, we have these songs, we have to get them down. So sudden death Time, although it was done in a short amount of time, um, we we still felt that freedom to uh, stretch out a little bit. So the things we wrote in the studio, I can't remember which ones we actually wrote in the studio. But there's, you know, there's a couple takes of the ones as we were, and you can hear it as we were trying to get get the songs down. Um, When we came out of it, we were just like, "Holy moly, that's really something different," you know. And when you say metallic, I think it absolutely is a metallic record. I didn't think we were making a metallic record. I thought we were kind of like slowing it down and just becoming a little bit more deliberate in the delivery you know we were right we had done this the the mid-tempo thing we had done the speed thing and now we were kind of like sharpening that pencil so that we could really really start to jab forward um without being um um uh, you know virtuosos or anything except jordan was a total virtuoso but we
0: was c- he though i mean he was he just like a he seems like a stellar. He
1: was a prodigy player, kid. you know. He just yeah. he was he played all absolutely, Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And he knew he knew music too, um, but he was just a you know, troubled hardcore kid, you know. Um, yeah. Great, great guy, but I mean, he just um, um, when he got on stage and and was allowed to shine, I mean, he just ripped. So, so we, so sudden death overtime, you know, comes out and people are are really. They're loving it. They're, they're blown away by it. And finally, it's the first record of ours that kind of goes cross-country and goes to Europe and um, has some distribution. So, um, you know, people start asking us to come play their shows cross-country. And, you know, we start toying with the idea of going to Europe at that point. So um, so we felt totally rejuvenated by the thing that was going to be our swan song,
0: you
1: know. Um, I like listening to it this these days. It, it brings back good memories. I'm not sure how the music stands up it's hard to be objective about that but um it, um i think it's a, it's a good record and it has great memories uh for me so
0: I think it's a great record I think it's a great sounding record I think it's a very even record I think there's like a like you know like a you know doesn't have those dips and yeah. ebbs and dips a lot of like hardcore LPs have yep. you know we're just like well this is a song is plopped on there Like, <laughs> like there's a certain uh, arc to it I guess well everybody For was right and
1: everybody was writing at that point too um, um,
0: yeah
1: um, and we had um uh, Zach from maelstrom, who was in the studio with us too, and he was helping us out um he was just hanging around, but he was I mean we had oh Hank was there and and Zach was there and and Zach actually yeah. played uh, rhythm on a couple of tracks um that he, oh, really yeah that he helped to to write you know he was he was he was close oh, with cool. Jordan, so they were just riffing together and yeah I mean, it cool. was just um.
0: Ca- Great. It, it's funny that Maelstrom is brought up because it's, it seems like the sudden death over time era or crosses over with a very interesting, distinct sort of time in, in, in Boston. Yes. Of a lot of young, just a new blood, a lot of young, at that time, young new bands doing very off the beaten path type, what we wouldn't really consider to be like hardcore. Right. But it's like in, or I mean, you could, but it's in that sort of scene uh, and weird and cool and definitely like youthful. It had a, like a youthful exuberance, but, you know, the kids could really play. And, yeah. you know, like you, you're like Eye for an Eye and Maelstrom yeah. and Kingpin and, you know, Sand Black Church and all these other bands that were just sort of this odd. It's just like these shows were just these fucking cool, oddball Mashups of all these different genres and types, sub-genres and genres and types of hardcore and metal and all this stuff that was really, in bo- the boss tones and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You just had all of this in a very, you know, the early 90s were just another little fertile time that Sudden Death Overtime, it seems to be like happenstance, it managed to wedge its way kind of in that, you know, what was burgeoning and new. But see, we had, you know, we
1: had the, we had the ability to at that point, I mean, this sounds kind of hokey, but, but we were commanding larger venues at that point. So we had the ability to take a band like Boss Tones and Maelstrom, who were friends of ours, who we dug, who we thought were making great sounds and put them on these bills and get, you know, a thousand people at the channel on a Sunday for a bill that had the Boss Tones and Maelstrom and Slapshot. You know what I mean? It's just like three, they couldn't be three more different bands. But there was these three different- ty- um types of people that were there, but I think they were all looking for the same thing, this aggressive um music that was entertaining and had some sort of message to it so um so we would ha- w- you know we would have these these really great shows, so you know we started w- when younger bands started coming up, we started enjoying them more like like you said, Eiffel an and I am you know those guys are great, Wrecking crew um i, I sure. loved like crazy, so um, yeah, just that we were in a position to, um, help kind of inflate the scene, you know, and the scene encompassed all these disparate groups of people and, and different types of music at that point, you know, there wasn't just hardcore bands, there was all kinds of bands. So, so, um, yeah, that was, like I said, sudden death overtime time was a really, a good, good time in, in my life.
0: How many Europe trips did you do with, with, uh, Slapshot? <laughs> 200 or? me personally yeah any
1: oh i've i've been to your probably forty forty 40 times
0: 40 times oh my god yeah between the years of like just like all in 1991 or was it like
1: <laughs> no 91 was the first year we went there and and it, it was um boy that was that was a trip um people were dying for it and people and not a lot of American bands had gone over there. I think Gorilla Biscuits had gone over a couple of times and um, not a lot from that kind of second wave of hardcore had made it over there. So by the time you know we finally got there, it was rabid. I mean, the first show we played was in Munster and there was no stage, it was just a youth hall and we were right on the floor and the crowd was as close as they wanted to get. And we started playing and people were going they were going apeshit. I mean, we were like, "Oh fuck, they're gonna kill us!" You know, like this. They've just been waiting to get their hands on us, but they wanted this so bad. Like they, they wanted, they wanted Slapshot really badly to come over. So every show we played on that trip was a blockbuster, and was you know we had interviews every night, three, four interviews with, with people who wanted to find out about. You know, why are you guys Nazis and why are you guys this and what, you know, all that kind of right. stuff. So we'd go, okay, you know, no, 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 that's not the case. You know, you're getting bad information. So we would talk to them and, and you know, win them over and, and have an amazing show.
0: So cool.
1: So it was a weird goodwill trip. I mean, it was, and we met people there who we still are friends with to this day. I mean, so the tr- subsequent trips were, some were better, some were worse, some were very stressful Somewhere absolute busts, um, but um, you know, I at that at that point, I re, I felt like I still wanted to just keep trying. You know, like we had, we had another another trip in us, another great great time ahead of us. You know, so in the in the two thousands, the early two thousands, when I kind of was waning off the whole thing, um, I didn't think that was possible anymore. I didn't think it was you know going to happen for slap So. Still right. went a few more times because the demand was there. You know, they still wanted us to come over, and the shows were good enough to warrant us coming over and helped us feel good, so. Yeah,
0: you got to go, you know, play drums in Europe. Right. That is not really, no, <laughs> nobody, like, no job that you have as an adult man is going to be like, well, you're done. Yeah, like it's, you know, like, it's like, true. They're like, cool, like, can you just, can you take us? Can you wear our T-shirt on stage? Like, what, you know, like, yeah.
1: <laughs> but know? at some point when you don't have much else to say, you know, it's like, I think by, by the time, you know, we were going over there in the two thousands, I mean, it was just like, what else do we really have to offer? We we're playing the same stuff off back on the map and step on it and sudden death overtime, you know? And and that right. was about yeah. it. You know, it felt like right. a, like a, a nostalgia act, you know? And how it's nice. Adulation is nice and having people appreciate it and mm-hmm. sing along and have a good time is nice. But, it's not artistically very satisfying so
0: no i mean it it it, it isn't yeah <laughs> you know like it's it's i it, it it's a job or i mean it's like a um it's a role that you're playing that you don't really inhabit anymore you're starting right. to play you're you're playing the role of yourself and it's a really bizarre right yeah.
1: and i just was not happy with my drumming i was not happy with um you know the 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 kind of charade I was putting on, you know, I never felt comfortable as a, I felt comfortable as a drummer because I had the ability to to keep up, but I never felt like, um, you know, as we were progressing, I was not progressing. I was not learning, I was not um, becoming a better drummer, so I wasn't bringing much to the, you know, Choke was getting very frustrated with me as he wanted to write songs that were a little bit more involved and I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't, yeah, he wanted to do these fills and things like that. And I was like, I just, I don't know how to do that. I can't, you know, and he's not a very patient type. So he, you know, wasn't like, well, you know,
0: really, let's woodshed, really, (laughs) you don't, you you know,
1: let's woodshed uh, with this for a little while. It's just like, you can't do this. This sucks, you know,
0: that's very frustrating, but, you know, I think like it's hard. It's very hard in a long-term relationship of any kind to sort of see. See the for, you know, not see the forest for the trees, you yeah. know. Like I think, like seeing what's in front of you and really adoring it is like very hard to do. Yep. You're always kind of you know pining for the what if and what if, you know what you're like what could, what are we capable of that we're, that we're not doing right now because of this one person? It's like right. well, it doesn't really matter. I think this band is actually the uh, you know the the components of this band are what make it. But it
1: did matter. It, it mattered to him. He wanted to, um, um, you know, move on and, and, and write some, some different music. And so I, I, they, were, they, they planned a, a pretty big tour of the U.S., I think. And I couldn't get out of my job. So I was just like, I, I can't do this. So somebody else filled in for me and did the tour. And when they came back, we just didn't speak for like five years. Wow. <laughs> that was, I just,
0: yeah. What brought you back together?
1: Um, they asked me to come back. They had kind of made a couple of records um, that they were happy with, but the the the, um, the listener of Slapshot was not happy with at all. So, you know, they were starting to peel off members here and there, and you know, had just gotten really far from um, enjoying themselves. But they still wanted to, they still wanted to carry on. You know, they still wanted to keep on doing it. So, um, you know, eventually they reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested. And I said, well, sure. I mean, I miss you guys, but, you know, I'm not going to play songs with, you know, samples of drills and stuff in them. What do do you got? You know, it's just like, that's not my thing. You know, what do you got? So (laughs) they played me a couple of things that they were working on. And I, I said, well, let's. That's a little bit more like it, you know, way more straightforward. And and I think they knew that I could bring my brand of simplicity to it and maybe ground them a little bit more. Um, So they needed to fly a little bit and they didn't and and weren't happy with it. So they wanted to just kind of get back on the back on the ground.
0: It sounds like it was sort of written with you in mind, you know, which is a flattering thing to think. Yeah. Um I, I, hadn't I have thought say, of that, to tell you I, truth. I, 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 I have to say, no, I mean it seems you know, there's reason for everything, but like if you hear the songs, you're like, well, I fit with this. Yeah. They're probably thinking the same same thing. Mm. You know, they missed it too. <laughs> But my first slapshot show was in with you on drums playing some of that early incarnations of some of that stuff, with some of that um, um, blast furnace yes. stuff. Yeah. Spaceman was uh, was one of the ty- working titles of a song that I really <laughs> loved. I remember like being like, "Whoa, fucking Spaceman really rules!" Like, just, like they're really going some. They're really going somewhere. Slash I wonder what it go was. To a new yeah, I wonder uh, what it
1: was. I don't even remember.
0: Um, it ended up on Blast Furnace. But it wasn't called yeah. Spaceman, but but it was in Carver, Carver, Mass.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember that show well.
0: Corn- Corners, Corners nightclub. Wow. And he played with played with my band. Time will tell. Wow. A, I was 12. I was 12 oh years
1: old. Oh my God.
0: Playing drums. Was How long like have you been playing for some time? Second show I ever played in front of people, maybe wow. ever. Wow. Um, maybe the third. Summer of 92. Yeah, it was probably the second show I ever played. Wow. Um, and it was like, couldn't believe my luck that we got to play with shot. That we Somebody fucking uh, bribed you guys into coming down and it was so cool. Well, it was hard and that's because what I, 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 think that's what I met you. And I was like, I was 12 and you were very yeah. nice. You were like a very nice guy. And I was like, oh, stop. Well, some, nice you know, guys. people were
1: nice to me when I was coming up in the scene too, you know. Um, and, yeah. and I appreciated that. And and I just, that's the kind of guy I am. I'm just a friendly guy. I, I, I wanted to be in a band so that we could um, make some noise and meet people, you know, and spread the scene, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't have any grand uh, plans to um, uh, you know become this virtuoso or become this huge hardcore band or anything like that I just wanted to to continue what I was doing and you know get into shows and, and meet people you know that's what I thought it was all about
0: well it sent me on a journey that I you know <laughs> it's experiences like that that and you being like the guy that go to Newbury Comics and be like <laughs> It was not embarrassing to fucking ask you, like, what to listen to. Like, you weren't a record store guy. Right. Like, you, you, like, at that point where you manager, manager maybe of the Harvard Square or Newbury Street, whatever, whichever one you were manager of in early 90s, it would be like, yeah, McK- Mark McKay, Mark McKay works there. Like, we can go ask him, like, what is good. And I remember, like, my friend Matt being like, what's, what's, like, a good... Revelation Records thing because he had like, you know, some other those, you were like, ah, oh, Judge is real, Judge is fucking great. Yeah. And turned him on a Judge. And I was like, whoa, Mark McKay knows who he's talking about. <laughs> so, we just asked you, you were so nice about his recommendations. That said, working for as long as you did at Newberry Comics, it, when things were like really, the, the, the pastiche was really changing um, uh, techn- technologically and sonically. Yeah. Um, how many CDs would you say you had at one point? Did you have a lot of CDs? You just like moved CDs around your whole life. Oh my Cause god! Because I can imagine working on Newbury Comics in the '90s. Get the fuck out of here! Yeah, it's so many CDs. Um, jeez, I mean,
1: probably in excess of like three thousand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, be generous. But I was a Do record yourself. collector too, so I had. You know, thousands of seven inches and things like that too. Yeah. Um, you know, the um, I was a rabid record collector as well as a, um, a CD purchaser. You know. Right. Um, oh, so yeah, just, I, with your discount. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So every single yeah. night you came home with a record and a CD or two. So every night you worked. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, the benefits of you know, being paid so terribly for for that kind of work. Yeah. Well. I, we could go forever. I, you know, I I really uh, enjoyed knowing you as a guy. Uh, You're just a very sweet, nice guy. Um, I think one of the most fantastic hardcore drummers that this city has certainly ever produced. Hugely influential on me. Like, no doubt about it. Um, And, you know, I relished uh, the the opportunity to, to talk to you.
1: Well, I am absolutely humbled that um, that you would want to um, pick my brain about this this stuff. I, I certainly love to talk about it. Um, um, and I got to say, um, likewise, um, with you, you were always uh, one of those faces that was always in the front of the crowd. And I would always see you there and, and uh, uh, always put a smile on my face. So I want to thank you for being
0: there. I was always, I was really into it. That was my... It was my whole life.
1: Mine too. <laughs> Mine too.
0: Well, you know, I, 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 we'll do this again. We'll have some, you know, there's, there's more to talk about.
1: Yeah, there is. And, and, and uh, you know, it, given the right prompts.
0: Like meeting Joe Strummer, for example. <laughs> we didn't talk about that. But with Mark McKay Redux, Mark, Mark McKay 2.0. It's going to have a little strummer talk
1: well anytime you want to you want to just get together and chat and and um um I, i'm always willing so so thank you for the opportunity i really appreciate it
0: well mark mckay it's a pleasure and an honor thank you and um i hope you have i hope you have a, a, a wonderful rest of the pandemic
1: you too man thank you <laughs> all
0: right okay dude I'll, I'll talk to you later you bet thanks again bye bye